Uh, as we begin today, we're going to be going through a lot of different Bible verses, a lot of different chapters. I will do my best to give you page numbers as we go along. But for right now, go ahead and just turn to Genesis chapter 3. That's where we'll be starting at. And as you're turning to Genesis chapter 3, I want to teach you a principle. And this principle is called Chesterton's Fence. Okay? Now you may say that's a pretty weird sounding principle, but let me explain it. Let me explain it. Here's, here's how the principle goes. If you don't understand why something exists, you shouldn't get rid of it until you understand why it exists. And he gives an illustration as to this principle. He says, imagine one day you're a man walking through a field and you come across this fence. Now, you could either take the effort to go around the fence or you could just kick down the fence and keep on moving. And the principle says, the man looks around, and he doesn't see any livestock, he doesn't see any, any animals, he doesn't know why this fence is here. Therefore, since he doesn't understand why the fence is here, it's okay for him to remove it. But here's the thing, here's the thing. Fences never just appear by accident. Where's Dennis Mix? Dennis Mix, you probably never wake up and like, man, my fence grew 20 extra feet overnight. That never happens. Fences take time, they take precision, they take money. And so instead of saying, I don't understand why this fence is here, therefore I'm going to kick it down and keep on moving, what you should do is say, until I understand why this fence was built in the first place, I'm not going to remove it because the person who put it here put it here for a reason. And so that is the principle. Did someone amen that? Someone must have built a lot of fences when they were younger. Um, and so that's the principle called Chesterton's fence. Now, this applies to more than just fences, obviously. Like, let's take our Bible reading, for example. There is a thing in the Bible that we come to where it is a proverbial fence that if we could, we would say, I don't understand why this is here. Therefore, I'm going to kick it down and just move past it because I see no reason for this to be here at all. And you guys are all saying, hang on a second, Calvin. We are good Southern Baptists. We believe that every word of the Bible is inspired, inerrant, authoritative. How dare you say that there's part of the Bible that we would just kick past and walk through without even looking at? And I would say, okay, maybe you all are just more righteous than me, but anytime I come to a big, long genealogy, I'm very quick to say, I don't understand why this is here. If I could get rid of it, I would. So therefore, I'm just going to bypass it. That's at least my confession. I was hoping I'd see a lot more head shakings, but maybe you all are more righteous than me. Adam is saying, no, I only read the genealogies exclusively. And so as we, as we look at genealogies, a genealogy is a lot like a fence. Like if you are writing something on very expensive papyri, by hand, and you could get away with leaving out who beget who beget who beget who, I bet you would do that. But the fact that the Bible painstakingly keeps genealogies in it is something that we need to ask ourselves, why then? Why does the Bible make this effort? And so I have a couple questions for you to just think about as we begin. Question number one, why are genealogies even in the Bible to begin with? Like, why does God want us to know who beget who? My second question is, why is barrenness something that the Bible talks about a lot? 
like when you think about medical conditions that are brought up in the Bible, you don't hear about how Methuselah had gout. That is not brought to the forefront of your mind. You don't hear about Abraham's kidney stones. But you know what is recorded over and over and over? This person was barren. They weren't able to have children. This person's womb was closed. They weren't able to have children. This person was barren. God did a miracle and opened her womb. This is time and time again recorded in Scripture. And so as we look at these, we see how genealogies and barrenness seem to kind of be these things that are related that we don't understand why they're there, but they're there for a reason. And so today, as we continue our sermon series through the typology of Jesus, we're going to be answering these questions, and we're going to see that God wants us to be able to answer one simple question. Who is the seed of the woman, and who is the seed of the serpent? We're going to learn that in Genesis 3 today, that there is a seed of the woman that is traced out in the Bible, and there is a seed of the serpent who is traced out of the Bible. And then today, our conclusion will be that Jesus is the greater son of God, Jesus is the greater son of man, and through faith in him, we can be part of the seed of the woman. Greater son of God, greater son of man, and then we too can be in that genealogy of the seed of the woman. And so, as we look at these patterns and promises, these typologies, we now know the end of the sermon. We know that I'm going to get to the conclusion that Jesus is the greater Son of God and the greater Son of Man. And so what we need to do now is we need to go back to the beginning and work our way to that conclusion. And so, just start in the very beginning. What do we have? We have God creating paradise. We have Adam and Eve in the garden. And then in Genesis chapter 3, we're introduced to this character called the serpent. And the serpent tempts Adam and Eve to rebel against God. And then Adam and Eve sin and rebel against God. And then halfway through Genesis chapter 3, God confronts the serpent and God confronts Adam and Eve and curses. Punishment for the sin is laid out. But within these curses, there is hope that is found as well. And so the first page to look at today would be page 2 in your pew Bible, Genesis chapter 3. Listen to the cursing that the Lord puts on the serpent. Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 through 15. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than any livestock and more than any wild animal. You will move on your belly, you will eat dust all the days of your life. I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Now when we look at these curses, there are five immediate things that we take from this that kind of sets the scene for the rest of how the Old Testament is going to unfold. We're going to see that lineage is going to become a key theme in the Bible. We are going to see that there are going to be two lineages that are followed. There is going to be the seed of the woman that comes from Eve, and there is going to be the seed of the serpent that comes from the serpent. We are going to see that there will be continual tension between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. As long as these two genealogies are going, there will be tension between these two genealogies. We are also going to see that from the seed of the woman, one day someone will come who will defeat the serpent. And then finally, we are going to learn that based on your obedience to Yahweh, that determines whether you are part of the seed of the woman or the seed 
of the serpent. And so from this moment comes this split between the serpent and the woman. And the way that Moses helps us understand who is who is not the fact that they both experience cursing. If you look at Adam and Eve, what is Eve cursed with? She is cursed with painful childbearing. She is cursed with now these gender role struggles and everything that they're going to have. Adam is cursed in the sense that the, gr or the ground is cursed. But Adam and Eve are never directly cursed themselves. God never says, Eve, cursed are you. Adam, cursed are you. Everything that God says is about something that they're going to deal with or do. But look at the serpent instead. What happens to the serpent? God says to the serpent, cursed are you, serpent. And so as we trace out these two genealogies, there is a line of people who they have to deal with the effects of sin, the byproduct of these cursings, but they themselves are not cursed. And then there is a line, the seed of the serpent, who these, these people, they have rebelled against God and they are cursed because of their rebellion. And so if we then fast forward one generation down, Adam and Eve have two children, Cain and Abel. Now Cain and Abel each bring sacrifices to God. Abel's sacrifice is pleasing to God because it was given in faith. Cain's sacrifice is not pleasing. And God tells Cain, sin is crouching at your door. If you do what is right, you will master it and overcome it. Don't give in to your sin. But Cain instead rebels. He takes a rock. He kills his brother Abel in a field. And then God comes to Cain and says, your brother's blood cries out, cursed are you, Cain. And so we now see that this genealogy is now continuing. We go from the serpent being cursed to now Cain being cursed. And if you look at Genesis chapter 4, what's the first thing you see? On your Bible, your little subheading will say, the line of Cain. And now we hit our first genealogy. Because you know what? The wicked apple don't fall far from the wicked tree. And so we see how wicked Cain has these children, and these children continually rebel against God and continually have more wicked children until we get to Lamech, who says, Cain killed someone for wronging him. I killed two men just for looking at me wrong. And so we see that through the line of the serpent, this cursedness, this wickedness is growing. But Eve has another son named Seth, and Seth has a son named Enosh. And then it says at the end of Genesis chapter 4, at that point, people begin to call on the name of the Lord again. And so we go to Genesis chapter 5. And what do we see in Genesis chapter 5? We see a, you guessed it, genealogy. But this time, it is not the line of the serpent. This time, it is the seed of the woman. From Seth to Enosh, then we go Enosh, Methuselah, Enoch, all those guys that we learned the names of in Sunday school. And then finally, we get to Noah. And Noah's dad says something really interesting when Noah's born. Noah's dad says in Genesis chapter 5, This one will bring us relief from the agonizing labor of our hands caused by the ground the Lord has cursed. See, Noah's dad, when Noah was born, much the same way Adam probably looks at Malachi, says this is going to be the child of promise. This is going to be the seed of the woman, the one who's going to crush the head of the serpent. And so from Noah, we then have this line of blessing continuing. And then for time's sake, I have to fast forward. But from Noah, we then go to Abraham, who we learned about in Sunday school today. God calls Abraham, says, from you, I will bless everyone. Anyone who curses you, I will curse them, i.e. anyone who rebels against 
Abraham is rebelling against the Yahweh who called him, so they would be the cursed line of the serpent. Anyone who follows after Abraham is the people who follow after God. They are the seed of the woman. From Abraham we have Isaac. From Isaac we have Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons, and now this promise of the seed of the woman changes from being one person to now a nation. And so we've traced this genealogy of this seed of the woman from the patriarchs Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob now to the nation of Israel. And so we learn something very interesting as we continue looking at this. Once we get to the nation of Israel and we kind of blow up what's going on and look at it, there are two parallel things that are happening. There is the promise of salvation that God is going to bring, and there is also the promise of an offspring that God is going to bring. If you believe and follow after Yahweh, you get the promise of salvation, the seed of the woman. You get to be in that lineage. Also, from the nation of Israel is going to come this Messiah who's going to crush the head of the serpent. But here's what we learn as we continue through Israel. There are some people in Israel who reject God, and even though ethnically they are of the seed of the woman, spiritually they are of the seed of the serpent. There are some Gentiles who ethnically, though they are from the seed of the serpent, spiritually, because they believe in Yahweh, are able to be grafted in and join the seed of the woman. And so this is really interesting as we continue, but Israel's history unfolds. Days turn to weeks, weeks turn to months, months turn to years. We have tension between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. Uh, Adam talked about judges, how there was constantly war and fighting because of sin, and God would raise up people to deliver the Israelites from the seed of the serpent, this tension that, that was continually happening until Assyria comes, then Babylon comes. God gives Israel over to judgment in Babylon. The best of the best are deported the first round. And Daniel, a God-fearing man, of the seed of the woman is setting in Babylon remembering the promises that he heard as a child that thousands of years ago I was told that one day from the seed of the woman would rise someone who would crush the head of the serpent and I don't know if that's going to happen and in Daniel chapter 7 Daniel has a vision and so if you'll turn to page 790 I want to read this vision that Daniel has and explain why this is relevant to what we've been talking about so far Daniel chapter 7, verse 2. Daniel said, In my vision at night I was watching, and suddenly the four winds of the heavens stirred up the great sea. Four huge beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. The first was like a lion, but it had eagle's wings. I continued watching until its wings were tore off. I was lifted up from the ground, or it was lifted up from the ground, set on its feet like a man, and given a human mind. Suddenly another beast appeared, a second one that looked like a bear. It was raised up on one side with three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, get up and gorge yourself on flesh. After this, I was watching, and suddenly another beast appeared, and it was like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. It had four heads, and it was given dominion. After this, while I was watching in the night vision, suddenly a fourth beast appeared, frightening and dreadful and incredibly strong, with large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed, and it trampled it with its feet whatever was left. It was different from all the beasts before it, and it had ten horns. Now stop there. Now listen, you 
don't have to worry about not understanding what we just read. And heaven help us if I'm about to go through and explain what every single one of these things mean either because we won't be gone until the chili cook-off next week. And so what is the principle or what is the point as to why I'm trying to show you this? Daniel is a Jew. He is a God-fear. He is sitting there ex- or deported to the land of the serpent, Babylon, and he's saying to himself, I was told at one point the seed of the woman was going to rise up and was going to crush the head of the serpent, and now he has this vision, and what does he see in his vision? We have lost paradise, and the seed of the serpent is continuing to grow. What started as a snake in a garden has now turned into these animals that are so terrifying that we can't even wrap our minds around them. Like, if we look at the direction the serpent has gone, it's gone from a little garden snake to now these giant bears with iron teeth and these eagles with wings and all these animals. Like, paradise is not only lost, but evil is bigger and badder and scarier than we could ever imagine. And so this is what he sees. And so from this, he has to be asking himself, how is the seed of the woman going to crush this giant bear, this giant eagle, this giant lion? I mean, the first guy, Adam, couldn't even handle a snake How on earth are we now going to defeat all these things that have happened? And so look at verse 11. I watched then because of the sound of the arrogant horns. The horns were speaking. I continued watching. And the beast was killed and its body was destroyed and given over to burning fire. Well, as quickly as the story begins, it ends. These beasts were speaking arrogant words and then dead immediately. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was removed, but an extension of life was granted to them for a certain period of time. And I continued watching in the night vision. And so Daniel is watching this vision. He sees these giant scary creatures, and then suddenly they just die. Someone kills them, and he doesn't know who. And now we get to see the character step onto the scene. Who is the one who's going to kill the beast? And suddenly... One like a son of man was coming with the clouds of heaven, and he approached the Ancient of Days and was escorted before him, and he was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. And so... We're probably, if we've grown up in church, familiar with Daniel 7. We're familiar with the fact that Jesus is called the Son of Man. But, but why the phrase Son of Man? Why does Daniel see someone and he describes him as a Son of Man? Like, isn't that a strange thing to call someone that he sees? You know what that phrase means? That phrase means a human. Like, a Son of Man is a human, okay? And so this is what Daniel sees. Daniel sees evil creatures from the garden warring and raging But who does Daniel see that comes to kill these animals? He doesn't see one like an angel. He doesn't see one like a mighty warrior spirit. He sees one like the seed of the woman. He sees one like what's been prophesied. From the seed of the woman will come someone who will crush the head of the serpent. Someone like a son of man, i.e. someone like a human is going to be the one who's going to come and he's going to crush the serpent. Now, obviously, this is not just a human. This is someone who's both a human and also divine. And it just says at the end of this chapter, this is the end of my account. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts terrified me greatly. My face turned pale, but I kept this matter to myself. That's how Daniel understands as he ends this, is that 
The seed of the serpent is even worse than he could have ever imagined. But still the promise is going to come that from the seed of the woman, a person is going to come who's going to destroy the seed of the serpent. And so as we end the Old Testament, we are then brought to a person named Mary, a young woman named Mary. Now, let me, let me ask you a question. I, I talked about barrenness in the Bible, and I didn't have time to go into all this, but Abraham's wife, Sarah, she was barren. Isaac's wife, Rebecca, was barren. Jacob's wife, Rachel, was barren. Every single one of those women in this promised lineage was a barren woman. Why is barrenness such a big deal? Because being barren means the death of a lineage. A generation cannot continue when a womb is barren. But here's the amazing thing. With barrenness, there's always the hope that maybe this time we'll conceive and have a child. And every single time God did something miraculous with Sarah, with Rebecca, and with Rachel and provided a child. And now we get brought onto the scene in the New Testament, Mary. And now Mary is not barren she is beyond barren like like being a virgin is like the ultimate barrenness right because like i said with barrenness there's still the, ch- the chance that maybe this time we'll have the child but there's zero percent chance that with the virgin you're going to have the child right and so we see all these <clears throat> barren women are a type for mary all these barren women and these miraculous births are ultimately a type for the ultimate miraculous birth of the seed of the woman. And so in Luke chapter 1, God tells Mary, you're going to have a son. He's going to be the son of God, and his kingdom will have no end. And so God is saying, you're going to have a child from the seed of the woman. This son of man from Daniel 7 is going to come. And so now that I've done my introduction, let's look at my first point today. Jesus is the greater son of God. And we will see this in Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3. Turn to Luke chapter 3, if you will. If you don't know where in Luke chapter 3, there's a big old genealogy in the middle of it. Park yourself right there. We'll be one verse above it. And so our first point today is Jesus is the greater son of God. Now you may be saying, I think he's the only son of God that I'm aware of in the Bible. I don't know how you would say he's the greater son of God. I don't think there's too many sons of God running around in the Bible. Actually, you would be wrong. There is one other son of God. But let's just, for argument's sake, make this point. When we get to Luke chapter 3, we see Jesus get baptized. In verse 22, the Holy Spirit descended on him in physical appearance like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. So when Luke introduces Jesus at his baptism, the father speaks from heaven and says, you are my son, i.e. you are the son of God. Then we get to this genealogy and we just skip it because we don't know what it's for, so we're going to kick down the fence of the genealogy and just keep going. But now that we understand why these genealogies are here, let's look at this genealogy. Let's look starting at uh, verse 36. Son of Canaan, son of Arphadok, son of Shem, son of Noah, son of Lamech. Not the Lamech who killed two people for looking at him. The same way we have same names here. They had same names back then. 
son of Enoch, son of Jared, son of Malahalalal, son of Canaan, son of Enosh, son of Seth, son of Adam, son of God. So the writer of Luke wants you to understand two things. He wants you to understand Jesus is from the line of the seed of the woman. He is from the godly line in Genesis chapter 5. He's not from the wicked line in Genesis chapter 4. But also he wants you to see what is another name for Adam. Another name for Adam is son of God. Adam was the first son of God, right? And so when we see this, we see that Luke wants to make a point very clear. Adam was the first son of God. But now Jesus, born miraculously of a virgin, comes. The father says, you are my son. Luke says, he's from the line. There's Adam, the son of God. And then look at chapter 4. Then Jesus left the Jordan full of the Holy Spirit and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted by the devil. What did the first son of God have to deal with? The first son of God dealt with temptation by the devil as well. Jesus, the son of God, also deals with that. But look at the difference between this. Adam, the first son of God, was in paradise when he was tempted by the devil. Jesus, the better son of God, is not in paradise. He's in the wilderness. Adam, the first son of God, was able to eat of any tree he wanted and was able to have all the food he wanted. Jesus, the better son of God, had been fasting for 40 days. Adam, the first son of God, was not alone. He had Eve with him, and yet he failed. Jesus, the better son of God, is alone in the wilderness. Finally, Adam, through his actions, takes beauty and turns it into destruction. Jesus, through his actions, turns destruction into beauty. Jesus is the greater son of God. Let me read from Romans chapter 5. Jacob preached a whole sermon through Romans chapter 5, so I'm not going to go point by point. I just want you to see the aerial view of what Paul is trying to say. Romans chapter 5, verse 12 through 19. Therefore, just as sin entered through the world through one man, and death through sin, in this same way, death spread to all people because all people sinned. In fact, sin was in the world before the law, but sin is not charged to a person's account when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who did not sin in the likeness of Adam's transgression. Listen to what Paul says. He is a type of the coming one. And so Paul is saying Adam is a type of Christ. And so how is Adam a type of Christ? <clears throat> Verse 15. <clears throat> but the gift is not like the trespass. For if by one man's trespasses the many died, how much more have the grace of God and the gift which comes through the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, overflowed into the many? So then, as through one trespass, there is condemnation for everyone. So also through one righteous act, there is justification leading to life for everyone. For just as through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, also through one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. So Paul makes this very good argument. He says, through Adam, the first son of God, he sinned and brought sin into the world for everyone. But through Jesus, the greater son of God, he resisted the devil's temptation. He lived the perfect sinless life. And through his death and resurrection, he now extends life and salvation to everyone. That Adam, as the son of God, was a type of what the son of God should have been like. But Jesus is the greater son of God that we see than Adam. 
And so that's our first point today is that we see that Jesus is the greater son of God. Now our second point we'll see today is that Jesus is the greater son of man as well. And so go back to the Old Testament and you go through these genealogies, right? I mean, Moses' dad was holding Moses saying, I bet this is going to be the kid that is going to crush the head of the serpent. I bet this is going to be the kid. I mean, look at him. Look at this kid. I bet he's going to be the one who's going to do that. Like, the same way parents look at their kids today and say, I bet my kid's going to grow up to be president, or my kid's going to grow up and be the CEO of a business or whatever. It's not hard to extrapolate that Jewish men and women with their firstborn male would be like, I bet my kid's going to crush the head of the serpent someday. Like, that's something that's on the table for him. And so, as we look at this, as we look at these miraculous births, like I mentioned Sarah, who was barren, Rebecca, who was barren, Rachel, who was barren, Hannah, who was barren, and then she had Samuel. Like, every one of these miraculous births, there would be a son of man born to the seed of the woman, right? Every time someone was born in this lineage who followed after God, who delivered God's people from the tension between the serpent and the seed of the woman, every time something like this happened, there would be this sense of wondering, is this the guy? Is this the guy that we've been waiting for? And every son of man has been someone who they have wondered, is this the guy? And so this term son of man, like I said, it's just a generic term for human. You know, you read Ezekiel, God says, son of man, say to these dry bones, come to life, and they will. You read Psalm 8, and God's, or and the writer says, who am I that you remember me? What is a son of man that you, that you care for him? Like, it's just a term that means human. And so, so here's, here's the difference, is that there are many, like, little a, a son of man, but there is only one, the son of man. And that's what we see Jesus fulfilling. Like, let me give you an illustration of this, of this wordplay here. Um, Shelly, I think it, where is Shelly? Where is Shelly? I think it was last time when we were in Mexico and you told me that you called Jeff Jefe because that means boss, right? And no, yeah, 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 yeah. And so, so when we were, at least I started calling him that. When we were in Mexico, we started calling Jeff Jefe because it means boss. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then we learned while we were down there that there's a really popular song called Jefe del Jefe, which means boss of the boss right? And so Jeff was no longer the jefe. He now had to be the jefe del jefe. He's not just the boss. He has to be the boss of the boss now. And that's how we understand that he is the big dog on campus. And so in the same way, while there are many sons of men in the Bible, there is only one son of man than Daniel chapter 7. And so let me show you how Jesus is greater than any son of man, how every son of man is just a type for Jesus. Look at Matthew 26 verses 62 through 68. This is Jesus before his crucifixion. The high priest is interrogating him. They're getting ready to try him. And this is what they say. The high priest stood up and said to him, don't you have an answer to what these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent and the high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the son of God. And listen to Jesus' response. You have said it, Jesus told him, but I tell you in the future, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has blasphemed. Why do we still need witnesses? See, now you have heard the blasphemy. 
what is your decision? And they answered, he deserves death. See, the high priest knew exactly what Jesus was talking about when he said, I am the son of man, you'll see me coming in the clouds and seated at the right hand of power. Jesus saying, I am the son of man. I'm not just a son of man, I am the son of man. I am the one who's going to come and who's going to be born of the seed of the woman and who's going to crush the head of the serpent. And so as we look at this, as we look at this, like every miraculous birth, every judge that's been raised up, every prophet, every priest, every king, every person who does the will of God and follows after him is a son of man, but, but they're all a type for ultimately this greater one. And so when Jesus is born, <clears throat> we see this fulfillment, and we see in Revelation 20, Jesus comes and he takes Satan and he throws Satan into the lake of fire and brimstone that he crushes Satan. But if you go earlier than that, we see how God empowers us through Jesus as the church to continue to fight and crush Satan. And if you go earlier than that, you see at the cross, Jesus crushed Satan through dying and his sin and crushing sin and death at the cross. Like, there is not just one time Jesus crushes the head of Satan. He continually crushes it until one day in Revelation 20, he will crush the head of Satan the final time and cast Satan into the lake of fire. And that's what makes Jesus the greater son of man as well. And so, I've spent 25 minutes now, maybe 30, I haven't looked at my watch, going through and telling you all this about why genealogies are important and why barrenness is such a big deal in the Bible. I've helped you understand about the seed of the woman and the crushing of the head of the serpent. And, and if you think about what we've done so far, it's kind of like meal prepping, right? Like, we haven't cooked or made the meal yet, but we've gotten all the ingredients, we've washed them all up, we've chopped them all up, we have all of our little ramekins of different, you know, cilantro and parsley and all these things, and we have all of our raw ingredients measured out. But to end the sermon, we need to now take all these ingredients, put them together, mix them up, and cook them and eat them, right? We got to do something with this. Like, one thing Jacob helped me when I first started preaching is answering the so what question. Like, so what about this? What are we going to do with it? And so as, as I think about essentially surveying the entire Bible and looking at these lineages and these genealogies and these, these seeds and things like that, what is the so what of this? What do we need to take from this? And I, I get one thing, one point of application that I want to share with you. And really, it's the same point that God said to Cain in Genesis 4-7. God tells Cain, if you do what is right, won't you be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door, and its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. What was God's call to Cain? God's call to Cain was be part of the seed of the woman, don't be part of the seed of the serpent. And Cain, whether you are obedient to me or you reject me, is going to determine which of these lineages you are going to be in. And so my call for you today is to remind you that even though the Bible is finished, there are still two genealogies that are being written. There is a genealogy of the seed of the woman. And every time a believer puts their trust in Jesus and follows after him and lives their life in faithful obedience, their name is added to that genealogy. 
And there is another genealogy, the seed of the serpent. Every time someone shakes their fists at God and dies in their rebellion against God, their name is added to that genealogy of the seed of the serpent. While you are here, while you are alive, you have two choices set before you. You could either have God as your father or you could have Satan as your father. And so to end, I want to end with two New Testament verses to read and then we will conclude with that point. If you're in a J2G, no doubt you've read these verses already and I hope you'll see just how completely relevant they are to our conversation today. 1 John chapter 3, verses 7 through 12. Little children, let no one deceive you. The one who does what is right is righteous just as he is righteous. The one who commits sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God was revealed for this purpose, to destroy the devil's works. And so in 1 John, he's laying this principle of those who live a life of habitual sin and rebellion of God, they follow after the devil. Those who live a life of practicing righteousness through the power of the Spirit, they follow after God. Verse 9, everyone who has been born of God does not sin, i.e. live a life of habitual sin, because his seed remains in him. Whose seed? God's seed. God's seed says, you are in my lineage of promise. If you remain in me, if you keep my commands, if you follow after me, then you are in the seed of the woman, the righteous line. And he is not able to sin because he has been born of God. This is how God's children and the devil's children become obvious. Once again, two lines. You are either of God or you are of the devil. Whoever does not do what is right is not of God, especially the one who does not love his brother or sister. Now, here's the final verses from 1 John. For this is the message you have heard from the beginning. We should love one another unlike Cain, who was of the evil one. What genealogy was Cain of? Cain wasn't of Adam and Eve. I mean, biologically he was, obviously. But Cain, spiritually, was of the genealogy of the serpent. He was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteousness. Just in case you thought I was just making all this up the whole time, I don't think any verses prove this point more than 1 John, that if you follow after God, if you love him and obey his commands and trust in him and put your faith in Jesus, then you are of the lineage of the seed of the woman. That big old genealogy that you get to read about in Luke chapter 3, you get to continually write names in that until your name gets to be a part of that. That's an amazing thing to think about. But if you rebel against God and reject him, then you are of your father the devil. And you may say, Calvin, that's pretty harsh. Well, okay, I'm just quoting Jesus here. Look at John 8, 42 through 47, last verses. Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, and the Pharisees say, our father is Abraham, i.e., we are from the seed of the woman. You got nothing on us. And Jesus says to them, if God were your father, you would love me because I came from God and I am here. For I didn't come on my own, but he sent me. Why don't you understand what I say? Because you cannot listen to my word, you are of your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. And then jump down to verse 47. The one who is from God listens to God's words. This is why you don't listen, because you are not from God. And so, as Stacy comes up to play, if, if you leave this room and have a better academic understanding of barrenness and genealogies and 
what the phrase son of man means in its specific context, but you leave in rebellion to God, then this sermon has profited you nothing. If you leave this place today and say, most of this went over my head, but I do know this much, that I want to be a child of God, I want to follow after him, and that, that's what matters to me, then this sermon has profited you greatly. Like, at the end of the day, I can't emphasize this point enough, there is no third genealogy. There is no third genealogy of then the neutral folk who are neither good nor bad. That doesn't exist. Either your father is God or your father is Satan. And the way you make that choice is by believing in the one he sent, which is Jesus. Believing that he came, he lived a perfect life, unlike the first Adam who failed. This Adam, the greater son of God, lived a perfect life. He resisted the devil. He was tempted. He was tried. He was put to death for a crime he didn't commit. He rose again, defeating sin and death. And one day he will return, and he will crush Satan the final time under his feet. And he will come to judge evil and wickedness. And that includes us if we are not of him. And so today, spend some time praying, spend some time reflecting, spend some time asking yourself, which lineage, which seed do I feel confident that I'm a part of? And if you don't know or you can't answer that, then come and talk to one of us. We would love to help you be confident in that. Let me pray. Father God.